If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. I hope you're well and spring is in the air wherever you are. Finally broke here in Minneapolis. I got a little preview while I was in New York last week and gave me hope that after the snowiest February ever in Minnesota history, uh, which is saying a lot, uh, that which also was followed by a couple of weeks of gloom and rain, that uh, spring is actually a thing. These last four days have been a serious mood enhancer. Thank you, Mother Nature, for this free treatment. If you're uh, new to the show, I want to welcome you. This is a podcast about exploring and defining what health means to you through ideas and conversations that only happen here, helping you build your own blueprint for health and well-being. If you're a regular listener, thanks for your continued support. I'd love to hear how you are implementing at least one thing you've received here from any of the guests. Maybe it's a physical challenge you're working to overcome. Maybe it's a mental health solution you've been seeking and have found insight to. Or maybe it's just simply change in perspective that you've gotten from one of my guests or from me. I'd like to hear about it. You can email me at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. As you know, I'm trying to bring you more information and resource and a place you can explore online, which will be highwaytohealthpodcast.com. But I really need some support. I'm enjoying the work of bringing you this content, but creating content and developing websites is very time-consuming and can get quite expensive. I'd like to keep this content free for those of you who simply can't afford it, but I've made it very easy to become a supporter for as little as $1 a month so that even if you're on a tight budget, this is something that you can surely do. Just go to patreon.com forward slash highway to health to become a supporter. There's no commitment and you can cancel just as easily as you pledge. And there's a great community being built around this project and I, I want you to feel more involved. So please reach out to me if there's a guest you'd like me to have a conversation with or a topic you'd like me to cover. I'm also going to start hosting some health forums this year. So let me know if you'd like to have me be involved in an event that you're planning. And if your room is set up appropriately for sound, I might even record it and bring the dialogue here to Highway to Health. Also, if you haven't rated the podcast yet, I'd really appreciate it if you take a couple of seconds to do so and leave a comment if you like what you're hearing here. Here's how you do it. If you're using the iTunes app, tap the Highway to Health icon. That brings up the episode list. Scroll to the bottom and you'll see the ratings and reviews. Also, don't forget, you can now listen to Highway to Health on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Buzzsprout. And if you're going to be up in the air or underground and want to listen there, just download the episode before you travel. My guest today is my very good friend, Dr. Aaron Babb. This is the second time here on the podcast and the first podcast I've done remotely. He is now full-time in Northern California, working in a rural federal hospital in Bernie, California, not too far from Redding and Mount Shasta. 
If you listen back to our previous conversation, you can learn more about how he took a deep dive for a few years, trying to figure out how to use technology to improve the collective experience for patients and for doctors, and to solve some of his own problems at the same time. I met him in the midst of a very tumultuous time uh, and worked with him for a couple of years through the startup, went to investor meetings and spent a lot of time at the whiteboard as he helped me understand how to use different platforms and how he was hoping to implement them and what he wanted to build on his own. And as as we found out fairly quickly in the grand scheme, uh, building technology is very expensive and ridiculously time-consuming especially for a couple of people trying to keep their practices going and afford to live at the same time. He's been mentioned here on the podcast a few times, so I wanted to make sure that you had a better sense of how and why we connected. We had actually planned to do this podcast together, and just as I had started to figure it out, he moved to California. But things actually worked out for the best for both of us, I think, and because of technology, we can uh, still do these regularly together. In this second installment, you're going to see exactly what he's doing that's so special and how his experience in tech startup uh, is giving him opportunities to develop the bigger picture he envisioned to solve the, the big challenges we face in healthcare delivery. Please enjoy my conversation with my good friend, Dr. Aaron Babb. So, so what's what's changed? Uh, like, since since I saw you, I, I mean, I really didn't get to catch up with you that much last fall. But I mean, since since you were last on the podcast, for, for sure, there's like so much that's changed in your in your work. It seems like yeah, there's been a lot. I mean, I you know, I wasn't really sure. <laughs> I wasn't really sure what I was going to be doing or if I was going to stay or what was going to happen. And, yeah, you know, I'm really happy up here in the middle of the mountains, and you know, I've uh, have a lot of really great patients and, you know, my schedule is now a little crazy. It's kind of a little harder to get in to see me, but which is good and bad. So, so is that, but, um, is, is that your primary care practice? Yeah. So basically I work at a, this federal health clinic. Okay. And so it is one clinic of, I think there's seven in the whole company now. And so it's basically like the only clinic in this like rural area. And then there's a handful of other ones in the other small towns. Okay. Um, and then, so it was five and then in the last like six months they acquired two other ones, one in Mount Shasta and then one in weed, California, Okay, which actually does not have a weed store. It's really funny. <laughs> uh, oddly enough. <laughs> they actually do have a quote unquote weed store, but all it is is like mugs and t-shirts that say like, I love weed on it, but they don't actually sell like any <laughs> cannabis there. So there is one in Manchester, but I just think it's really funny. Yeah. So I work at this federal health clinic and I do kind of general medicine. So basically kind of anything that walks through the door, which is pretty awesome. Actually, I feel like I've actually helped a lot of people, which yeah. is cool. And one thing that I kind of reluctantly took over was this uh, Suboxone program at our clinic. Oh yeah. So you were our, telling me about that. Yeah. So this is definitely, so this is related to like the whole opioid thing and uh, so we had this medical director who was awesome. Um, her name is Dr. Smith Chase, and uh, she was just really cool. And she kind of came at the same time when I did. And we both walked into this clinic kind of like 
what the hell is going on with all these pain pills going out the door. Yeah. And so we both basically were like, this has to stop. And, you know, she was the medical director and I basically just started seeing patients and stuff and people would come in and be like, oh, I'm just here for my three months of pain meds like crazy amounts. Yeah. So there was a lot of people here who were not happy with me at the beginning. Oh yeah. I bet. Um, but anyway, so she, as she took over the, plus it was right the, around, wasn't it right around the time? I mean, it was right around the time Prince died too. Oh yeah, probably. And, 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 and I remember people. that was like, and then like Tom Petty died or something shortly after. And I remember, you know, some, someone that we treated to, together telling me that she couldn't get a lot of yep. stuff. And it was like yeah. sh- shifting and she's actually shifted to something that's not too far from what you're doing now, but sorry for interrupting, but yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. I mean, there's been so much crazy stuff related like to the opioids and it's just something that I kind of fell into. So anyway, so she started, um, uh, so actually in most States to be able to prescribe Suboxone, you actually have a, have to have a special license or okay. kind of like a certification on your DEA license. And so kind of the head of the behavioral health in my clinic is this um, guy in his 70s. His, his name is Raymond, or he's, his name is actually Dr. Mandel, but he goes by Raymond. He's okay. a super awesome guy. And so he asked me, to, you know, if I would be willing to get like the special license. And, and she did as well because she wanted to start this Suboxone program. And then she ended up leaving uh, because she's a wound care doctor. So mm-hmm. she ended up like going back and doing that full time. And then she kind of asked as she was leaving if I would take over this program. Um, and I was, you know, a little reluctant, but, um, it's been pretty rewarding actually helping people, you know, come off of pain pills. Um, and we're starting to get a lot more patients who are like uh, hooked on heroin, um, and getting them basically, you know, into this program where they see, you know, a counselor and they also see me. So I basically help them with like their medications, you know, with this like Suboxone. So Suboxone is what's called a partial agonist um, to the opioid receptor. So it basically, it's not like a full agonist. So what that means is if you say take a bunch of it, you're not going to have that euphoric sense. And so basically, even if you took like tons of it, it still basically would block your withdrawal symptoms and block your cravings, but you're not going to necessarily get high from it. Because it's it's like um, what's what's the other um, thing that was so, used used in treatment for a long time? Yeah, methadone. Methadone. So method, right? Yeah, so method methadone is a full agonist, and so okay, gotcha. that um, you know, so there's a lot of people, me included, who don't do that, um, and partly because there's a lot of people who end up abusing them, uh-huh. and a lot of people actually who yeah, you can still basically like overdose on that, still like okay, abuse it. Okay. Whereas I don't think is you probably could with a suboxone somehow too, but we just, I just don't see that. Yeah, yeah, and so um, yeah, so we've gotten a lot of people onto it, and it seems to be working. You know, when people are actually like uh, invested in the program and actually want to do it, you know, there's like it's just like any it's just like anything else, right? If someone really doesn't want to and they're being right. forced to do it, then it's not going to work. Just like quitting smoking or you know quitting sugar or anything else. So, so, so what are the, what, what are the rates of compliance for something like that? You know, I don't know the statistics, you know, like offhand, I can just kind of tell you like, you know, anecdotally from my experience so far, and it's definitely not a hundred percent. Um, but when people are doing it consistently, I'd say probably, you know, around, 70% 70% of our people are compliant. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we drug test them often. And that's pretty you know, high. Th- 
What's that? That seems pretty high. I mean, compared to just about any other form of, of treatment, the people who like stay on track with whatever they're supposed to be doing is usually yeah. not, not that high. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe it's blown. Maybe maybe I'm blowing it up a, a little bit. And we're, it, you know, our program's still pretty new yeah. as well, so people haven't been doing it for that long. Yeah, yeah, that's probably helpful too. But it's still, I mean, I yeah. feel like, I mean, just from what I, I remember talking to you about before, the frustration of like just any old thing that you're sort of dealing with, like taking the med- medication, you know, regularly or appropriately or whatever. It's just like, or the people who just, you know sometimes wouldn't wouldn't even engage and just didn't really care. It didn't matter whether it was like going to kill them or make them really sick. They just weren't really engaging. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, you know, then the one thing too about, about this is, you know, I'm not putting everyone onto Suboxone. I still have a ton of people on pain meds. You know, I I don't think I've really started anyone on them. I've basically just taken over like a lot of patients. I still have a lot of patients on pain medication because there are a lot of like legitimate people who benefit from them, you know, in the correct way, if they're using them correctly. You know, probably one of the biggest ones is, you know, like older people who have like a lot of arthritis and they have other health problems that put them on blood thinners. So, right. you know, a really common one that I see is like someone who has atrial fibrillation. And so they have to be on a blood thinner like Coumadin or, you know, uh, some of these other blood thinners. Okay. So when you're on a blood thinner, you can't take NSAIDs. So you can't take like Naproxen or Advil or Aleve or anything like that. Right, right. Because uh, basically it's dangerous. And so with those people, you know, if they do have legitimate pain and have gone through a lot of procedures and stuff like that, I still have a lot of people on pain meds and I think it's very legitimate. But, you know, of course, there's all sorts of reasons why, you know, the opioid crisis. And I think sometimes the people who actually need them also are kind of getting screwed right now. Right, right. That's 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 the other thing that I see going on. Well, and it's really hard too, like in the state of California or across the country, I mean, because, you know, they're really coming down on doctors for prescribing too many opiates, which is funny because I was talking to someone else the other day and telling them that, you know, I don't know the timeline of this per se, but they, you know, at one point they made pain the fifth vital sign. So basically, you know, yeah. like your heart rate and blood pressure and temperature and, you know, respirations or and your SpO2. So basically, you know, those are all objective, meaning that you can measure them. Yeah. But your pain scale is like, so, you know, on a scale from one to 10, what's your pain level today? And so basically when they did that as a subjective measure, people kept coming in you know, they kept coming back and so they would get asked like, oh, what's your pain scale today? And they kept saying, oh, you know, it's seven out of 10. Oh, we better give them more pain meds. And then they come back and they still have that much, you know, on their pain scale. So basically that's one of the reasons why people kept like giving out higher and higher doses of, you know, opiates because some doctors were getting in trouble for not treating patients pain correctly. Right. And now it's like completely the flip opposite. (laughs) You know, huh. so basically now you're getting in trouble giving out too many opiates. Right. And luckily, like I, you know, wasn't really being a doctor at that or like, you know, fully practicing when that was going on. And so I don't necessarily, you know, um, I can't blame a lot of the older doctors who were like basically giving out a lot of pain right, right. because, you know, they were essentially kind of trying to follow like the rules and the guidelines. And so now all these doctors are like peeling everyone off of these sometimes inappropriately. 
you know, like taking them off too quickly and just saying yeah. you have to go somewhere else because right. they're so afraid of getting in trouble. Right. Like there's this crazy thing going on in California. I haven't read too much about it just because, um, you know, I wasn't a doctor here when they're like looking at it, but they're going through all of like the death certificates from like a certain era, like oh 2000. God. I, I, like 2011 to 2015 or something. And so basically any death certificate that has on it, like, you know, issues with opiates or something, they're going back and like cross, cross referencing the doctor who is prescribing them pain medication and going after those doctors. Uh. Yeah. And so there's now there's tons of doctors in this area who basically are just like cutting people off and you're like, sorry, you're going to have to go somewhere else. Like basically like I can't do this anymore. Uh. Yeah, so a lot of people are getting caught in the middle. That's horrible too. Oh my god! I mean, it's, it's all kind of just an absolute mess, and everyone's like, you know, pointing fingers at people, you know, saying, "Oh, it's pharma. Oh, it's you know the doctors. Oh, it's insurance. Oh, you know." I mean, I think there's a lot of people, unfortunately, that are, yeah. you know, involved. I think the other thing that people don't think about is, um, and I'm sure you do, and a lot of people in your field because of like reviews. So the other thing is that, you know, reviews are really taking over a lot of industries, especially like healthcare. So if patients don't review you very well, you know, and say you're not like, you know, treating their pain or other things and you get bad reviews, well, one, you lose patients, but also like you can be, you know, um, a complaint to the medical board or, you know, other things like that. And so the whole review process, um, Definitely, I, I feel like puts doctors and other healthcare professionals in kind of a bad situation, and sometimes I think that leads to um, doing bad things or the wrong things for patients because they yeah, don't. Yeah, of course, it sort of gets back to like what you and I were working on before, where we're, the challenges both with that that stuff, which is not, I mean, it shouldn't that shouldn't really be a compliance issue, but it ends up becoming one through whoever you're working for, probably right. Yeah, definitely. But but the but the other part of it was like how, you know, early on when you were in a, a, a certain health system, <laughs> you were having trouble feeling like the like you were able to practice the art of medicine because everything was like so programmed through the system that you couldn't really you know direct things the way you wanted to without having to go through all the different hoops or check the boxes to get them you know through different things so that you could care for them basically. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, you know, algorithms and guidelines and basically like standard of care practices at like big institutions definitely dictates how, you know, medicine is being practiced where a lot of doctors just feel like they are a cog in the wheel and just have to comply with, you know, what what they're told to do. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. And that's another reason why I really have enjoyed, you know, my my job out here in practice because I feel like for the most part I can really you know, do what I think is right for the for the patients who walk in the door, which is something cool and, you know, something that actually is what I really wanted to be doing. It, it seems like you have a bit more freedom there. I'm sure there's all the other regulations that any other, like, hospital would have, but I don't know, it seems like you you kind of keep getting brought into one thing after another, like the, the I know you you helped the the hospital get the, the telemedicine there, right? Didn't you do grant work with them or something to help them? yeah. Yeah, actually. So when they found out, you know, that I had been kind of doing some telemedicine, um, 
you know, startups and, you know, technology and stuff, they asked if I'd be like the director of the telemedicine program at the rural, this, the local rural hospital. And, um, and it's actually been really awesome because I have this, um, coordinator, her name is Amanda and she actually just like kind of, we go out to lunch every so often and basically she just kind of like asks me about certain problems and then she just kind of like takes care of it and takes like a lot of my ideas and runs with it. And it's been just incredible. And so, we have uh, we first started with endocrinology and nutrition. So basically, any huh. di- uh, diabetic with um, who's on insulin, yeah. I had them all see the nutritionist and the uh, endocrinologist. And so now they see the endocrinologist every like three to six months. And she has definitely helped a ton of people. And then we have an infectious disease doctor over telemedicine. So all the hepatitis C patients oh, have been awesome. seeing him. There's been a few HIV patients um, who have seen him too. And then there's now a, um, a neurologist who actually is really great because – so one of the neurologists in the area ended up going to jail. And so there's only one neurologist in the whole area. Um, and so basically it's been very, very hard for us to get you know patients to a neurologist. And so this neurologist over telemedicine is really great. Um, and so we'll probably just kind of continue to expand it to other specialties. And it really is pretty awesome because some of these patients would have to drive like three and a half hours to Sacramento to see like a true specialist. Yeah. So, so how, how often do, let's say like going back to the beginning of the, the endocrinology, working with diabetics how how what would that look like do do, do you set it up as like a as like follow-ups through telemedicine after they've come to see you yeah so the way so the way it happens is you know patients come and kind of establish care with me so basically we kind of go over all their issues all their previous issues and stuff they want uh, help with and then if i feel like i can't help them or you know i feel like they need a higher level of care then i'll do like a consult to a specialist okay and so if there are specialists say in reading which is about an hour away you know who have good reputation i've been here long enough now that and i've sent enough people to like different specialists i can kind of tell who's good and who I want my patients to see, you know, cause I'm essentially like their advocate in this yeah. whole system and trying to help them navigate, you know, to get to the right people or the right specialists. And so if, um, you know, if the, there's a specialist in Reading, oftentimes I'll send them there and then say, if there's an insulin dependent, uh, diabetic who comes to see me and I think they need to see like an endocrinologist, then basically the same process would be instead of sending the consult to like a clinic in Reading, then that consult goes up to Amanda at the hospital and then she calls them to schedule an appointment and then they come to the hospital and sit in a room with Amanda and um, then over t- over video, like basically secure video chat, there's an endocrinologist, and I think she is in. She's either in Sacramento or San Diego. I can't remember. What, what do you but, use for video now for for secure chat? So yeah, so basically they uh, we subcontract with a company called Telemed to you, and so okay. basically they get all the specialists, and so um, and I think they are switching to Zoom for their oh, really? actual video. Huh. Yeah. Yep. And so that's, um, and so they have their own like, like platform and stuff like that. And so we subcontract out with them to find all the specialists. Okay, cool. Yep. And so then the patient sits there and they go over their medications and lab values and then they make adjustments on meds. And then at a separate appointment, they see the nutritionist again over, over video chat. Okay. How much, how much time do you spend in, in front of the screens doing telemedicine? Are you doing anything? 
nope, I'm not doing anything. Okay. So you basically I'm just, you know, kind of overseeing the program and kind of, you know, steering the ship a bit, okay. which is actually like perfect position for me. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm, and I'm kind of like the advocate and answering questions to all the providers like in our clinics about it and, you know, who would be appropriate to send and, you know, what kind of problems are good for telemedicine and what problems aren't. Yeah. You know, like one of the big ones is like dermatology, but we have a couple, you know, good dermatologists in Reading. And so I've always kind of felt like, you know, if there's really like an issue that needs to be biopsied or skin cancer, that sort of thing, then, you know, I think it's worth just sending them to like the dermatologist an hour away instead of them, you know, doing it over telemedicine. Right. But I'm sure there are also just like simple things that people get, like, like what you used to do with my daughter. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. yeah for so sure. That's pink yeah. eye. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I, I enjoy being a, um, a text messaging doctor sometimes with family and friends. Yeah, it's, it's fun. pretty awesome. So, so I got, I got on on the on the technology front. I got to, I got to learn more about the Google Glasses because I, I still don't quite have a, a handle on like how you're using those. Oh my gosh! So. This had absolutely changed my life. <laughs> so this, um, uh, yeah, absolutely changed like my whole perspective up here and really just like made my job satisfactory and went from like, you know, why am I doing this? And I need to go somewhere else to, I'm like happy being here because, you know, especially in healthcare now, there's just so much paperwork and it's crazy. Um, and you know, I was basically just kept putting my focus where I thought, like it needed to be, which is helping the patients. And, you know, I got really far behind in the paperwork because you just can't do it all. Right. And so basically I had been looking, you know, cause obviously I was looking into technology for a long time and just very interested in it. So there's a company called Augmedics and what they do is they basically connect, um, like, you know, clinics and doctors, um, to remote scribes. So basically the way it works mm -hmm. is I, I wear glasses every day, you know? And then, so there's, um, I have my prescription and then what's connected to my glasses is the Google glass thing. So essentially what it is, is it's a camera and an audio recorder that's connected to the Wi-Fi server in our clinic. And then it has like this prism and this like tiny little screen that's in like my right um, eye glasses. Okay. So basically I can be like looking at my glasses and then what happens is, so I have a scribe, his name is Onik and he is in Bangladesh. Okay. And basically like I am communicating with him like all day. He's like, and, but the thing is I've never heard his voice and I've never seen him like on video before. So basically he can hear me and he can kind of see what I'm seeing. Okay. And then he can write me little messages in that little screen. So it's like a little chat on the, on the side. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so it's, it's incredible. And so the thing is, is like, there's different ways of using it. And, you know, some providers will like be in the room and they'll be asking their scribe, Oh, will you pull this up, you know, pull their labs up or that sort of thing. But I've kind of felt like I wanted to keep the relationship between like the patient and, and myself as, um, natural as possible. Yeah, so I yeah. kind of wanted to make it like they don't even notice that I'm wearing anything. Right. And for the most part, that's kind of how it's been. Like most people don't even notice or they'll be like, what's that strange thing that's on your glasses? And I explain what, you know, what it is. And do, do, do your eyes have to kind of shift around a little bit to, to see stuff on the, in the glasses? A little bit, you know, okay. so the screen is basically just text. 
And so what happens is like, if he sends me a message, like there's a little like ding that, that goes off in my ear, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm not wearing any like headphones or anything, but just kind of like off the Google glass, it would make like a chime mm-hmm. to, to, you know, tell me to focus onto that screen. But you don't have earbuds and, in or anything? No. Uh-huh. You, you just hear it on the, like the stem of the glasses or how does it work? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Uh-huh. So just like a little like chime and it's pretty subtle too. Like a lot of people don't, don't even hear it. Huh. And so then, um, so I can just be like talking to the patient as I, as I would before, you know, and I still have like, you know, pieces of paper that I jot notes down and that sort of thing. And so then at the end of the visit, when I'm walking back to my office or between patients, I'm talking to Onik and I'm telling him, you know, okay, so add this template, you know, uh, or add this part to like the certain part of the note and stuff. And then he can basically, now we've been working together for, I think four or five months, he's picked up, uh, you know, a lot of my, um, the way I like this written and that sort of thing. And yeah. so he basically creates the notes for me so I can be like working on orders or, you know, um, calling patients or doing other things instead of like having to like spend hours like doing those. Like I was coming to the office like, every weekend doing those like all the time. Like I had been there for over two years and then one weekend I finally had everything done before I left. (laughs) That wasn't until like he was there helping me. So so is is there anybody else at the hospital who's picked up on what you're doing and wants to do it? Yeah. So actually there is, um, a couple other doctors at the, that weed clinic who are using it. Okay. And like a lot of other people want to use it too, but it's actually really pretty expensive. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so they, what does it, um, what does it cost? A, um, I'm not totally sure, but I think it's like maybe two, maybe between two and $3,000 a month. Oh, to which, have the, to have the, the scribe. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, they're paying for the Google Glass and the software that the Augmetics company has made to connect, you know, basically me with the Google Glass to Onik, you know, in Bangladesh and that sort of thing. And, you know, probably it, I mean, from my perspective, I think it absolutely is worth it because, you know, in a lot of other clinics, I would have like a medical assistant and a nurse. And in my like clinic, I have like a medical assistant who's incredible. Um, but then there's like a nurse who basically is shared by like 10 other like providers. And so she's pulled in all different directions. Right. So, does, so, so does the, the clinic pays for the scribe? Yeah, definitely. Okay. I basically was kind of, you know, I was like, all right, we, I really want this. And, um, because if I, if I can't have something like, you know, something to augment, the paperwork and get it done, I'm going to have to go somewhere else. Yeah. So they were really great about, you know, trying it out and seeing if it would be worth it. And, and since they're very, very happy now because I get all of my work totally done on time and, yeah. you know, and all the patients are super happy and all the staff is very happy. And even all the, you know, uh, specialists that I send people to, you know, they have much clearer notes of exactly what question I'm asking when I'm sitting a patient. And so mm-hmm. things are just so much better. Because I feel like that's it's one of the biggest problems that that follow up and especially when when there's like something going on like that needs like immediate notes and you know people are moving from one doctor or one specialist to the next and need stuff immediately that seems like crucial and even like oh my when, gosh, absolutely when when my daughter was in the hospital you know when she had meningitis. It was that was the one of the biggest frustrations was that there there was a really poor communication going on like between you know nurses and and there was there were a couple of situations where she had to have like 
uh, some, an implant basically because the pick line didn't work anymore and you know how that stuff works. And, it, yes. and so it was, and it, but they, they didn't have like the right information and you get into the, like, <laughs> you know, talking to the surgeon and they don't, they don't seem to have all the information. It's like scary. It is very scary. And there's so many mistakes that are made because of poor communication yeah. or not having all the correct, you know, data in front of you. Yeah. Absolutely scary. <laughs> and, and, I, and I feel like if, if more people are doing this, it, eventually the cost is going to come down too. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I, I mean, you're totally right. I think one of the biggest problems is just like the paperwork and not having all the correct data in front of us and not having all, you know, different softwares connecting to, you know, things. And so basically, you know, I tell patients this a lot, especially when I'm meeting them for the first time um, and especially like the more complicated ones, you know, I tell them, you know, think about me as like a computer. So, you know, the more data that you give me, you know, the more information you can like, you know, think about, I don't care if it, you know, if you think it's important or not, you know, anything that you think is relevant to what's going on, the more information you can give me, the more likely I can like get to the right answer for you. And and a lot of people aren't used to that though now either. Well, it's hard. Well, I mean, hardly any time. Right, right. Exactly. Most of the time people feel like, oh. I got to talk really quickly or I need to come to the conclusion myself because the doctor has two minutes, which I mean, frankly, that is true in some respects, you know, they have to, you have to see so many patients to basically make, you know, enough money to keep the lights on. And it's just, it just has become a big problem. Yeah. And has that hospital been around for a long time? The rural hospital? Yeah, it has been. Uh, They're actually uh, remodeling it now. You, you think you're going to stick around there for a bit? Yeah, I think so, actually. I mean, things have been going really well. And, you know, I just kind of feel like I'm doing a lot of good and helping a lot of people, yeah. which is something that um, is just very rewarding. And, um, yeah, it's been good. And the fact that they're they're like, you know, giving you, giving you the lead on all these things now, too. I yeah. mean, I feel like that's a that's a – a good thing from from my standpoint just because i know you well enough to know like how you're going to run something like that and also that the the, the kind of quality you know part of of what you do and it's i mean to to have to have a a, a system directed by something like that seems rare yeah. <laughs> in my experience yeah, it's, yeah, it's been really um, pretty awesome. You know, so go, going back to the Suboxone program, because you have to have a special license for it, I actually travel to uh, that clinic in Weed twice a month now because I guess there was a big problem with, you know, opiates up there too. And I guess there's a much bigger, you know, heroin problem than uh, I guess we were aware of uh-huh. as well. Um, and so I'll probably be kind of traveling a little bit to some of these other clinics to see if we can get these resources to you know, the people who need it. Yeah. I guess you, you had some interest in this before when you were kind of, you know, starting to explore like use of cannabinoids, but, yeah. but I, I, and I, I guess I didn't see you going in, in the more kind of treatment realm, but I, but I, it seems like a good fit though, too. Yeah. I definitely did not think that I would be doing this at all, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, the, uh, the cannab- uh, the cannabis thing is a little bit, you know, it's very interesting, but because we are in a federal health clinic and because yeah. it's still, you know, kind of essentially federally illegal, even though it's been around like medical in California, now it's recreational. Basically anyone who's 21 and older can go into a dispensary and, you know, 
buy and use cannabis as they see fit. Um, but so when I talk to patients about it and I've been talking to them about it since, you know, the beginning, because I really do think that, you know, if someone does have chronic, you know, pain or especially chronic neuropathic pain or insomnia or some of these other issues that the cannabis is good for, you know, if you're going to be needing something long term, I really do think, you know, a natural, um, um, you know, product like cannabis, especially if you know where it's coming from can be, you know, easier on your body than, you know, very synthetic pharmaceuticals. But and because so, it's a federal clinic, you can't, you can't prescribe, even though you right. had, I know in Minnesota, you had the license to prescribe, but you can't, you can't do that in California in a federal clinic. That's right. Yep. And so basically, but I don't even need to now because it's recreational in yeah. California. So basically, um, people can just go into the dispensary and buy it themselves. And so basically yeah. I have conversations with people all the time and I just kind of tell them, you know, there's off the direct. record. And so I don't put anything in their chart about it. Right. Um, but you know, I try to educate people on the difference between, you know, CBD and THC and different ways that they can use it and, you know, places that they can, you know, go and talk to people, um, um, you know, because some of the dispensaries are really good about, you know, educating some of my, you know, more elderly patients who don't know a lot about it and they'll take time and, you know, have them try different products and that sort of thing. But it's hard because um, a lot of the products are very strong now and, right. um, you know, um, you know, sometimes people would try something and it doesn't work for them. And so they just kind of say, oh, it's just not even worth it. But a lot of other people, I've helped them, you know, come totally off the opiates and, you know, cannabis has definitely helped them transition. For somebody who is suffering from some kind of neuropathic pain syndrome, do you, what is, do you, is it like a, a specific um, ratio of, of CBD to THC that you recommend for them or to, to start out with it since it, because even some of the vape pens can be like so strong, someone's not used to the, the amount of THC if you get like a full THC pen, right? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so usually what I, uh, you know, I try to explain, you know, the difference between CBD and THC, which, um, you know, there's thousands of chemicals within the cannabis right, plant. Right. That's kind of one of the reasons why, you know, I still kind of feel like the best way to use it, it especially at the beginning, is actually just to smoke the regular, you know, flower. Right. And the reason why is because, you know, it has all of the chemicals in it and like, and it's not necessarily like really tampered with. And because it's so strong now, you don't even have to smoke very much of it at all. Right. And, you know, there's never been any um, case of lung cancer that's been linked to, you know, cannabis smoking. You know, obviously with any smoking, it's probably not great on your lungs. But I just kind of feel like it's such a small amount. <clears throat> and if people are, you know, using it appropriately, I, I, I actually feel like that might be one of the best ways to do it. And you can even do it like in a vaporizer or something like that. So then it's not necessarily like full smoke, but at least you're yeah. getting like all of the chemicals. Okay. But anyway, so there's thousands of chemicals within the cannabis plant. And, you know, they think that the CBD chemical is one of them that's really for medicinal uses. Mm -hmm. And the THC is the chemical that kind of gets you high and stoned. Right. And so you can. And that's good for CBD, nausea, right? The THC part? Uh, say that again? The, the THC part is good for nausea, like for, for cancer patients. Yeah, sure. Can be. And yep, stuff. Definitely. And it's also good for, you know, for cancer, oftentimes they lose their appetite. So different strains that have certain types of THC in it can be good to stimulate your appetite, you know, which is what a lot of people think about the munchies and that sort of thing. Yeah. But the yeah. other interesting thing is like other strains can kind of suppress appetite and, mm. you know, 
you know, there's been some, you know, interesting studies showing that actually stoners have less BMI than non-stoners. Right. So I've, 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 I've know, seen that study. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's stuff all over the map. And, 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 the, like and, the, diet, wanna, and the diet companies are all looking at it and thinking, hmm, yeah. <laughs> how could we make money off of this? I mean, I feel like there's probably, you know, if you really want to prove a point, I'm sure you could find a study to somehow prove your point. But right. That's why sometimes I get a little jaded about any medical research anymore. Anyway, so the CBD chemical is mostly the medicinal properties. So one reason why, like a lot of people, you probably see it in, even in gas stations now, you can buy CBD, even in states where cannabis is illegal. And the reason why is the CBD chemical can come from hemp or it can come from cannabis. Okay. And so I think in the most recent farm bill, they made CB, or hemp legal in all 50 states. And so you know, by doing that, I th- I'm not 100% sure, so don't quote me on this, but yeah. I think that means that that makes CBD legal in almost all 50 states. Ah. And so... And But a lot of people have been telling me that, you know, like the CBD coming from hemp is not as strong. And so people end up having to use much more of it. So the CBD coming from cannabis is stronger. And so it, uh, I guess it, it, you know, is so they don't have to use as much of it. Okay. But to go back to the, um, you know, the person with neuropathic pain, you know, you can get these like tinctures um, that have like combinations of THC and CBD and then you just put a few drops under your tongue. I think that could be really interesting. The other thing is there's a lot of topical stuff now. Right. So right. then basically you don't get any, you know, any of the head or, or body effects and you can put it on the place, you know, where, where you're having neuropathic pain, which, you know, a lot of diabetics have diabetic neuropathy in their feet and their legs. And so it's probably one of the most common reasons or after injuries or surgeries. Okay. And and uh, is is uh, what's what's the what's the state of of psilocybin? I know that that's like a a, a growing region in California for for that. Do yeah, you think, do you think any yeah. any any more research and study is going to be done on that? Oh, definitely. You know, I think that's probably going to be the next um, interesting thing as it um, as it relates to you know like psychedelics that sort of thing. So they've been doing studies on both MDMA and psilocybin. So psilocybin is the active chemical in magic mushrooms. Yeah. The other interesting thing is I don't know what happened, but I think Denver was just voting on whether or not to make magic mushrooms essentially legal so basically you know you couldn't sell them but basically people who grew them in their home and used them you know for appropriate reasons basically you couldn't be criminalized for that i don't know where they're at with that but i think that's interesting and they've been doing studies on uh, psilocybin for ptsd uh, for refractory depression i think for addiction and some other things yeah the the, the michael pollan book was pretty interesting oh yeah just you know especially getting in that john hopkins study like getting into the use of it with with people who are you know either terminal or or you know chronically ill you definitely know, the, the the results of some of that stuff is kind of fascinating i mean just just that there's nothing else in in pharma that that is anything like it basically oh yeah definitely and even i think they did a study even just uh one time 
um, psilocybin with, with like a therapist. So that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about this is yeah. the psilocybin. It's not like they're just going to prescribe it and you just go send you into the woods. You know, hang, <laughs> yeah. Hang out in the woods by yourself or something. It's more like you go into a clinic and you, you know, uh, take psilocybin with a therapist and they're trying to basically, you know, kind of walk you through the journey of you, you know, going deep within uh, your own self to try to fix some of the issues that are going on. And and some people are going to have a positive experience with that. And I'm sure there are, you know, a percentage that are not, and it just might not work for them in, in that respect. Definitely. Which Definitely, is, which is true with cannabis too, probably. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. For cannabis, you know, that works for some people and not for other people. And the psilocybin will be the same. But I think they had a study where they were trying to help people quit smoking. And so they had one um, psilocybin uh, therapy session. And then like a year later, I'm making, the, I don't know the statistics. I, off the I top remember of the head, study. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like a year later, like 80% of the people still like had quit smoking, which like blows everything else out of the water, right. like Shantix and the medication and, you know, patches and gum and stuff like that. Like, that just one dose of psilocybin to help people quit smoking, I guess, is like blows any other treatment out of the water. So I think for like addiction, especially like the whole opioid thing, yeah. I can definitely see like, you know, in treatment centers and that sort of thing, having, you know, psilocybin, you know, therapy sessions as, you know, a weapon because there's, it's just such a huge problem right now. And I, I, when I when I read that study about cigarette smoking, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, has this been done with opioids yet? Uh, not as far as I know. I'm sure there are a lot of people, you know, like helping their friends and that sort of thing with it. You know, not necessarily like therapists, but yeah. Um, but I hope it gets you know started because I think that's really really needed. So are you uh, are you still um, digging into the into the stem stem cell research? Uh, yeah, yeah. That uh, also is another one of my interests, just because I think. Um, you know, your body healing itself is really the way that most, you know, healing works. Yeah. And so, you know, taking the like a knee pain, for example. So actually my jujitsu instructor, he was having like really bad knee pain and he had a torn meniscus on one side and needed to have surgery and his other knee was starting to act like it. It was like swollen for over a year and causing like, you know, clicking and popping and just like causing him to not be able to work out as hard and the kind of limp and that sort of thing. And so yeah. I ended up doing a PRP injection for him, plasma rich um uh, platelet-rich pl plasma, mm -hmm. and um, so it's kind of like stem cells, but not necessarily. And uh, it worked like way better than I thought it was going to, and you know worked way better than probably doing like a cortisone injection or that sort of huh. thing. What's a, what's actually, the yeah. what's the cost of of doing that? Is it is that an out of pocket thing now, or or can that be covered? Yeah, most insurance companies are not covering it. Um, you know, I essentially just did it for them. Yeah. Um, but they can cost anywhere from like 900 to $1,200 a shot. So okay. it can be very, very expensive. Hopefully it gets covered by insurance at some point in the near future, though. But, but what, would the, what, would, what would the cost of, of a cortisone shot be in, just a, just a in yeah, ballpark in, in relation to that? Yeah, probably like two or three hundred dollars, maybe. Okay. okay. So you it's, know, it depends it's on insurance and that sort of thing. More, but yeah, 
So Dr. Carlson and I went uh, back to that stem cell conference again in Austin, Texas this year, which was interesting. You know, I think it's unfortunately right now it's still like a very controversial issue because I think there were a lot of like stem cell clinics that popped up throughout the country and there were some like issues with, um, you know, like ethics and maybe not doing like um, doing things like appropriately. I guess they did like Mm. there were some really crazy stories there where I guess um, people did stem cell injections into the eye, uh, you know, for like glaucoma or macular degeneration, and then it ended up like causing blindness. And so there there was just like a lot of issues across the country and the FDA is not super uh, happy about it right now. And so it's kind of like a regulatory gray area in many respects, especially like um, fat-derived or adipose-derived stem cells where they do essentially liposuction and then get – uh, stem cells that way. You know, the way that if I were going to do it would be the bone marrow. So basically right. you pull bone marrow out and then you concentrate it down and inject the stem cells like into people's knees and hips and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, for a lot of use cases, I actually, you know, if you have the money, I think it's a great bridge procedure, you know, say between doing, say you have like, you know, knee arthritis and it's like, you know, on x-ray, it's kind of like moderate. It's not like severe bone on bone yet. And, you know, you've already done like NSAIDs and, you know, you're doing like Tylenol and you've done physical therapy and you've done, you know, all these other things, but you don't want to have a knee replacement because you're not there yet. Yeah. And you have the money to do it. I definitely think it's worth it, but I think it's still kind of unfortunately a bit of a uh, regulatory gray area. So a lot of people aren't doing it. Yeah. How, how much how much orthopedic work are are you involved with there? You know, actually a lot, and that, you know, my, because my you know my crazy background of all these like different things I've done yeah. really has has been a benefit up here because um, you know I see a lot of orthopedic stuff. You know, any sort of joint pain and that sort of thing. I do a lot of knee injections, a lot of like bursa injections, shoulder injections, trigger point injections, you know, carpal tunnel yeah. injections, all sorts of stuff, which is cool. Oh wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I didn't I, I didn't realize yeah. you were doing that at this point. Oh yeah, for sure. And even like, you know, people will like, you know, cut their hands or arms or something like that and I'll sew them up in the clinic or, you know, cut, you know, like cysts off or like pomas off or, you know, do biopsies of skin lesions and do a little bit of everything. It's it's amazing to think like, I mean, you're 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 a bit a bit of a generalist, but you also have this like background in orthopedic you know, surgery residency and a little bit of plastic surgery. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like that. Yeah. I, I don't want, you know, it's like, I, I realize that much of medicine is, is so much more specialized than, than that. But I, I also sometimes feel like it, it really does benefit someone as, as, as a doctor, I mean, any, any job, but to, to just have a little bit broader, you know, to be able to kind of have a big, little bit bigger view of, of what's going on too. Oh my gosh, definitely. <clears throat> you know, I was on track to be a hand surgeon, like yeah, a yeah. super subspecialist. And you, I think that would have been cool. And I think I would have helped a lot of people, but actually, you know, kind of being a generalist and being able to you know, kind of take care of the whole, everything about the person and being able to get to know people and then get them to like the right specialist actually is definitely a skill. And so, you know, having my experience on the specialty side and seeing how that whole side of things works, 
I um, feel like I can do a lot of good for people by, you know, getting them to the right specialist the first time. You know, like I end up, you know, there are some specialists in writing who are great for certain things, Mm -hmm. you know, for certain simple things. But, you know, getting, say, someone to like the right specialist at like UC Davis or UCSF, like the first time instead of having them go see like multiple other specialists has been good too. And, and you, and you just have like a, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, I met you at a point where you were kind of interested in private practice and, and I think the, in the, the, even more specifically, you really liked the urgent care side of things, which is, and, and the fact that you, you like to build these relationships makes the kind of work you do so much more like holistic medicine. <laughs> yes. I mean, really it is. I mean, that's, that's what I would call it, even though I'm, I'm sure that's, that that kind of has all sorts of negative connotations in the in the allopathic world, but I I think that's changing too. Oh, I definitely think it is changing too, and I think that's what a lot of people are looking for, and also why I think a lot of my patients really, you know, trust me and you know, uh, you know, look to me for you know like advice because I'm really trying to take care of like the whole person and you know if they do have any sort of issues trying to figure out, you know, what types of things they can do in their life to, to fix it and trying to take the time to actually get to know them. You know, that's why, you know, if I had a family or, you know, just advice to other people would be definitely trying to find, you know, like a family practice doctor or, you know, even a nurse practitioner or someone, you know, that basically can get to know like their whole thing and their whole family and get to like know the whole dynamics and then direct them to other specialists because right. you know working in the urgent care or orthopedics that sort of thing was awesome because you could kind of fix a problem and then send the person on their way you know but you wouldn't necessarily like you know invest a lot in that person because you basically are seeing so many people and you're just kind of doing one-off things and but if you can have kind of a generalist or a, you know even like a family medicine nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant or something you know someone who can get to know you and then direct you to like resources that are in your area i think that's a huge benefit and a lot of people aren't doing that anymore um you know they're just basically going like to all the different specialists and then those people don't talk to each other so there's a lot of mistakes that get made yeah in a way it's it's almost a benefit to have gone through some like health crisis this is sort of weird to say but i I feel like i i experienced this with with my practice where you know i i really get to know somebody oftentimes through crisis and then they become healthy and don't really have any major issues. They kind of come see me for for maintenance. But then I, but, the, but just because I spend so much time with them for that one period of time, I actually get to know them very well. And you know, now a lot of my referrals come from these people who I have developed these kinds of relationships with, who are kind of looking for someone like that too, like like who you are. And that's you know why I develop you know a. a referral network of people like you who looks at people as whole people because it's just it you know that's now now you're kind of supported with any with anything that might come up yeah absolutely long term absolutely well cool man it was great catching up with you yeah absolutely when are you coming when when are you coming to minneapolis again Hmm, i don't know maybe to come and do another uh canoe trip in northern minnesota oh that sounds so great (laughs) it was a little cold might have to do that earlier in the year (laughs) (laughs) awesome man it was great catching up with you yeah you too dr aaron babb folks 
I hope you enjoyed that. It was great for me because while we've kept up our contact and message each other all the time since he's been in California, we don't necessarily talk shop very much. So it was great for me to catch up to what he's actually been up to. And I promise I won't wait two more years to have him on again. Part of the reason that we were drawn together is that when we met, besides having passion for helping people and educating them on how to improve their health, I was in the process of developing a health network online in two cities that I was working in, that being Minneapolis and New York, or more specifically, Brooklyn. I believe I have a knack for finding good healthcare providers for referrals, and I knew right away that Aaron was a really good one. He was one of those all-in people, and we both wanted to see more of us in healthcare. Care providing can be an overwhelming job at, at times, and many care providers succumb to poor care of themselves and depression as a result. Doctors in the U.S., in fact, have the highest suicide rate of all professions. One thing Dr. Aaron and I started to understand in developing our projects, and something we still believe, is that if we're going to improve the situation in care in this country, it's essential that we improve the quality of experience for everyone involved. Insurance is going to be what it is. Big health systems are struggling, and there will always be greed at the top. But to improve relationships in this mix makes all of our day-to-day experiences better. And if there's a takeaway from the the work that the two of us did together in, in health tech startup, it is just this. It's great to see him working this experience into his rural Northern California practice. And I hope that from these conversations, you're understanding the potential of what could be. Thanks for listening and supporting this project. Again, if you'd like to support this project, don't forget, it just takes a minute. Head over to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. Also, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. I'm always easy to reach by email, jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.